Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. And the New Testament reading is from John 20, verses 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Come and shape in us uh, a hope equivalent to this day, a hope appropriate to what you have done. Lord, on this day, our words tend to fall short, but we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds on the hope and the wonder and the joy of this day would be a blessing to you and to us. Be magnified in all that we do. We pray through Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is such a marvelous day. It's just the best day. This is the day that changes everything. Jesus is raised from the dead. 
the Lord is risen. Nothing, not even death, will stand in the way of God getting what God wants. We bust out after a long uh, Lenten season. We bring out our hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujahs once more. It is just, it's just marvelous. And it's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, maybe for all kinds of reasons, but mostly because we know that generally dead people stay dead. Uh, it seems a little bit too good to be true on the surface of things, a bit of wishful thinking, you know. It, it's fine if the whole thing is kind of a, a spiritual idea and not a physical reality, right? Uh, not a dead body made alive, but the perseverance of the human soul or will or something spiritual like that. In fact, that's much easier because it doesn't really challenge or change anything. It does nothing to overwhelm our expectations. That's perfectly familiar. And we tend to like our expectations to align with our realities, more or less. Which is why I'm always kind of heartened by the way that the gospel writers tell the story of Easter morning. I mean, for one thing, they all tell it a little bit differently which I think is kind of a beautiful reminder, or maybe at the end of it all, a, a, an admission that we don't get to control this thing. One voice isn't enough to make sense of it all. We need a, a chorus of witnesses. Now, one thing that all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, agree upon is that no one was around when the resurrection happened. It, it would have been handy if it were otherwise, right? It would be nice if somebody, anybody, uh, could have described what happened in those early hours before the stone was rolled away. Inquiring minds would like to know, and, and yet the scriptures are glad to leave us wondering. And I think that's worth chewing on. And for me, the most gracious thing about the way that the Easter story is told, for, for my naturally skeptical mind, is that none of the first disciples seemed to believe it either. Not one of them dances around because they just knew this is what was going to happen. <laughs> none of them who heard from Jesus' own lips that, that more than once that he would suffer and die and then be raised again believed him. Not one of them. I mean, the closest thing we get in, is in John's version that we just heard, uh, where one of the disciples saw the balled-up grave clothes and believed. But John is pretty quick to mention that it's not altogether clear what he believed, uh, because they didn't yet understand the scriptures. You know, for all we can tell, what he believed is what Mary had said, that the body is gone. The best the breathless disciples can do is shrug their shoulders and go home. Whatever they believed in that moment, it sure doesn't seem to be that Jesus had overcome the power of sin and death and started a revolution of hope and love that changes everything. And I, I want to linger for a second on, on that almost throwaway comment about them not understanding the scriptures yet. Because I think that actually gets us closer than anything to understanding what we're doing here. It seems to me that what's at stake in that comment is whether or not God is the God who makes promises and keeps them. Is God's word reliable even when it's strange? Now, John doesn't seem to be all that concerned that we understand the logistics of what went on on Easter morning, but he is very concerned that we understand who's at work. It's God's at work. The, the God who from the get-go is the one who makes promises and keeps them. The one at work on Easter morning is the one who from the opening pages of Genesis is determined to make all things new no matter what. 
The one who's determined to bless and to have a world that teems with life. The one at work is the one who stayed faithful all in, in face of all unfaithfulness. Who time and again has refused to allow death and brokenness to have the last word. Who has been relentless in chasing us down in goodness and mercy. If this is the one who's at work in the wonder of, of Easter, then the question is mercifully not whether we have the capacity to believe or understand or get a handle on miraculous things, but whether we trust that the God we need is the God that we've got. That in fact ours is and has always been the one who does things we don't expect, whose ways and thoughts aren't ours, who chooses what we wouldn't choose, and that that is the promise that saves us. You know, I, I think John makes clear that while belief and unbelief are important, and I, I do think these things are important, it's not everything. The, the promise that ours is the God who shows up anyways, that's everything. This is good news, right? The resurrection of Jesus is not subject to our capacity to understand or even believe it, praise God. God is not limited to what we can handle. And what we can handle does not determine what God will do with us and for us, in us, and through us for the sake of this world. The goal isn't to understand, but to trust that the God we need is the God that we've got. And to allow ourselves to be pulled into this hope that really is beyond all hope. It's a hope that, that is way beyond what we would come up with. And that's why I love this scene with Mary after the other disciples have left again. You know, I, I think it's one of my favorite resurrection accounts. We're probably not supposed to pick favorites, but I think this is my favorite one. And, and I love that uh, Mary doesn't hang around because she's more convinced than others that Jesus is raised from the dead, just like he promised. Now, she stays because she is determined that someone around here will, will know where the blessed corpse is. She stays because she wants to anoint the dead body of her teacher and friend. To look death in the face and grieve, which is a perfectly reasonable and worthy thing to do in the midst of loss. But she's not there because she thinks the world is different. She is there because she thinks everything is the same. The same old powers, one all over again. And all that is left to do is weep until she can move on, if that ever comes. And I love this too. Just in case we ever thought that we have to have our acts together or our theology figured out, uh, in case we thought we had to be able to see the, say the creeds uh, without crossing our fingers behind our backs for Jesus to want to have anything to do with us, this is the moment that Jesus shows up to Mary. The moment when the sudden appearance of angels does not make any difference in what she thinks. When her eyes are blotchy and so full of tears that she can't see, her nose is running, her mascara is smeared all over her cheeks, and she is a complete wreck. The moment that she's just explained to Jesus himself how hopeless this all is, that is when he says her name. He says her name, and he draws her into the hope of this day. You know, here's something I hadn't, hadn't adequately noticed before this year. John's, John's gospel begins with this kind of famous line. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's closely followed by another pretty famous line, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, and that, that word, Word, is the Greek word logos. 
And logos is more than kind of an utterance, uh, just a one-off word. It, it's, instead, it's an all-consuming kind of philosophical concept. It's the divine reason that orders and sustains the entire universe. And first century Greek speakers who first heard the gospel would have picked up on this. Now, John uses this word really intentionally to say that Jesus is the one who eternally holds all things together. Or as St. Paul puts it, the one through whom and for whom all things are made. And so John begins with this, this Jesus, the eternal logos, right? But what matters in the end is that he's the one who speaks Mary's name. That's what John wants us to know at the pinnacle of the gospel. And it underlines for me that the point of the Christian life is not finally about sorting out the deepest truths of the universe, it's not about getting enough knowledge to save ourselves. It's not about getting a handle on the eternal logos. It's about turning to the one who knows our name. It's about turning to the one who shows up long before we've got anything figured out. The one who shows up when we're so consumed and confined by the way we think things are that we can't see straight. The one who shows up in the midst of that and speaks our name with a love that is stronger than death. That's the moment that changes everything. You know, there's a passage in one of St. Paul's letters, the first letter to the Corinthians, where, where Paul is confronting this problem in the community in one of the churches that he planted uh, because there's a conflict brewing because some folks are saying there isn't a resurrection from the dead. You know, it, it had to be something else. Jesus only appeared to be dead or the word was only pretending to be human and not fully human and fully divine. Something has to be up because they knew like we know that dead people don't come back to life, not after three days. After three days, dead people stay dead. You know, some folks are questioning this thing that is the foundation of everything that Paul believes, everything that he does. He talks about resurrection, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus more than anything else. You know, that's the thing that makes all the difference. It's the seal on the promise that the will and way of Jesus really is the will and way of God, which is all grace for us. You know, it's the, the seal on the promise that God has actually overcome sin and death, which means everything now and forever. And so he says in this letter, it's chapter 15, if you're curious. He said, of course there's a resurrection. If there wasn't a resurrection, why would I have told you there was a resurrection? which is not exactly the height of rhetoric, is it? You know, because I said so is not, you know, the most convincing argument. But then he says this, he says, if there's no resurrection, then your faith is in vain. And what he's, what he's counting on is not that folks will be convinced by the strength of his argument, because of course nobody would be, but that they'll snap to attention that they will jump out of their seats, that they will say, no way, my faith is not in vain. I know the one who knows my name, and that changes everything. Now, Paul's not counting here on his powers of persuasion because that's not going to work. He's counting on what he knows, that these folks are here because in some way or another, whispered or sung audibly or in the silence of love, literally or metaphorically, they have heard the risen Jesus say their name. They've been drawn into this relationship with the one who may well be the eternal Logos, the one who holds all things together, in whom and for whom all things are made, but who is, and I dare say more importantly at this moment, the one who knows them and loves them and has their name on his lips and gets close enough to say it. 
And that changes everything. It changes everything because we know now what kind of God we have. Ours is the God who brings us out of slavery of anything that binds us, even death. Who will be my God and your God. Who will be my Father and your Father. Who is the one who will stop at nothing to be for us. To be, who made us in love and will love us to the end and then through it. Ours is the God who will not leave us when things get difficult and worse. Who will not turn away from us when we are tear, a tear-streaked mess who will not condemn us when we kill and abandon him, who will not shy from our doubts and fears, who will not leave us in grief. No, ours is the God whose love is stronger than death, the one who comes alongside our doubts and our fears, the one who is unafraid of our grief, the one who is brimming with forgiveness and mercy and compassion, the one who will join us in the ash heap, in the rubble of best laid plans and the hollowed out shell of hopes and dreams, just to speak our names. Now, ours is not the God who is vague and indifferent. Ours is the God who knows our names. The one who is dead and is alive loves us and has called us and claimed us and nothing in heaven, earth, or hell, not even death, will separate us from him. And that changes everything. And Jesus says Mary's name, and in that moment, the world is turned right side up, not upside down, right side up. Grief is made joy, resignation becomes hope, fear gives way to elation, and tears are traded for a testimony to something marvelous. Mary goes from a slobbering tangle of doubt to being the first person on this side of Easter to say, I have seen the Lord. And she knows it because Jesus said her name. And how perfect is that? You know, I believe Jesus is raised from the dead, that he lives and reigns even now. I can say the creeds with open hands, not because I'm less skeptical than most, certainly not because I'm more faithful or faith-filled than anyone else, but because I've come to know the one who knows my name. And it's never been for me a dramatic moment like Mary's or, or like Paul's Damascus Road experience. I've said before, I sometimes have conversion envy because my road has not been all that flashy. <laughs> but Jesus is persistent. Jesus is relentless in love and grace. And, and, and by that grace, I, I, I know that my faith is not in vain. I know that Jesus is alive. I, I know that he knows my name and speaks it with a love that is stronger than death. And that's why I have hope in the church, too. It's not because it's a perfect inf institution, heaven help us, it's not. Uh, not because it's always been a place that nurtures my faith, but not because I think people in the church are better behaved than people outside the church, Lord have mercy. But because this is the place where we come and keep coming back to remind ourselves of this thing that we know in spite of it all. You know, the, the church is the community that is bold to say with Mary, I have seen the Lord so that others might see him too. The church is the body that will remind us when doubts and fears creep in that ours is the God who knows our name. Ours is the God who knows your name, who delights in you and who calls you and who won't let even death stand between you. 
Ours is the God who is ins- has insisted that brokenness and death will not get the last word on us or this world, but love and life will. He has conquered the death-dealing ways of the world. The systems and structures that killed Jesus were not enough for, to stop God getting what God wants. The violence and destruction and fear and, that is so familiar to us is not enough to keep God from getting what God wants. A world that teems with life, a world that is overcome with love, that is eager for justice and joyful in righteousness. All hell isn't enough to stop God getting a world restored. And not in spite of us, but with us, in us, through us, who turn to the one who calls our name and calls us in life, in death, and in life beyond death. And so today, may we have ears to hear that call. May we hear our name on his lips. And with Mary, may we have grace and wonder to listen because it changes everything. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Thanks be to God. Thank you.